Then we started looking at our portfolio. It was absolutely amazing. We had three properties out of all the properties we owned that were impacted by the storm. And two of them we knew would flood because they're in flood zones. We have flood insurance on them. They flooded in the past. I mean, it's just kind of, we knew, right? I mean, there was no surprise there. But then there was this house in Memorial. And I will never forget sitting in a meeting probably two months before, should we get flood insurance on it or should we not? And the house was literally like just in the, just a little piece of the backyard was in the 500 year flood plain. And we thought, eh, probably don't need flood insurance on it. Well, this was a thousand year flood event. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest Jason Bible. Jason, are you ready to rock? I'm ready to go. Let's do it. <laughs> All right, let's go. So, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about your background? Sure. My name is uh, Jason Bible, and I'm now a full-time real estate investor. So not necessarily like the weekend warrior that you see a lot of folks are that are out there, or, or a mom and pop investor, if you will. I started uh, real estate investing in July of 2013. That year, we bought about seven houses. We decided to take our profits from that from those endeavors and then reinvest those into our business. So instead of like a lot of you guys that are a lot of guys that you see on YouTube or Facebook that immediately go out and buy a Lamborghini and the big house and all that nonsense. We put it right back into our business and kept growing it. The, the next year in 2014, we bought 67 houses. In 2015, we bought 90. And then from there on out, we bought over 100 houses a year, mostly fix and flip and some wholesale all here in the, the Houston area. Fantastic. Before I got into real estate, I was a risk manager for a biomedical research institution here in Houston. So I've got 15 years of risk management experience in, uh, in healthcare and biomedical research. And so that's, uh, that's what I did before I got into, uh, into real estate. But um, it's been a wild ride. We've had some winners, lots of winners, thankfully more winners than losers, but we have had some whoppers and some losers. Well, that's the whole fun of the show. And ladies and gentlemen, Jason, if you can't see it because you're listening to the audio, but I can see he's in a studio getting ready because after this interview, he's going to be doing his daily radio show. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, so we've got, we were invited about three years ago to do a radio show in Houston, Texas on 1110 AM business radio to really share with folks in particular investors and how to invest in real estate. So there are a lot of these real estate gurus and seminars out there like there are for any of these financial, financial advice areas. And a lot of it's, you know, get rich quick, you know, you make a lot of money overnight and that's really not true. So we started this show with really just sharing what it is that we were doing. You know, the, like I said, the wins and the losses and the ups and the downs and, and, and those sorts of things. So add a little bit of truth to the, to the real estate education marketplace. And so we do a show every single day on 11, 10 AM here in Houston. And we also have a podcast and, you know, YouTube and Facebook and all that other stuff. So it's a lot of fun for us. A lot of folks ask us like, how do you do a one hour show every day? And I said, well, we work in this business every day. So it's literally, I just pick up my phone and what comes across on email? What are we working on right now? You know, right now we're doing a lot of small apartments and Airbnb. That's kind of the popular thing. I think we're just now on the very beginning of the, of a big wave of 
of really figuring out Airbnb as a business model. But, um, but that's what we do principally. I've, I've moved from the fix and flip and wholesale space over to buy and hold small apartments, Airbnb, that sort of thing. We're looking at some larger apartment projects, but wow, they're expensive. <laughs> not, mm. not, from, not from an aggregate dollar, meaning 10, 20, 30 million dollar project, but on a per door basis, cap rate basis, rates are still incredibly low. So we are very cautious in the large apartment space, but we're seeing a lot of opportunity in the less than 100, less than 50 unit space. And we're operationally set up to handle those smaller projects. So that's what we do now. It's And uh, yeah, I'm here in the studio getting ready to do the show here in about you know, 40 minutes or so, but, um, Rock yeah, it's on. Been a wild ride. <laughs> yeah. And, um, one last question before we get into the big question. And that is, um, I spent my career working with people who are investors who are investing in the stock market globally mm-hmm. in Asia, that type of thing. And it takes a certain kind of personality and, you know, it, I'm sure my, it's different for real estate, but I'm just curious, what is it that be the traits to somebody that would say, you're, you're right for investing in real estate. You know, it's almost maybe the traits, like we can do a couple of different traits, traits that, that are positive and, th- and some things that are, might be a detriment if you're a real estate investor. So if you're somebody who is incredibly risk averse, I, I don't think real estate is for people who, who can't handle the risk. And the only reason I say that is if you look at how the SEC qualifies real estate, it's considered a risky venture. There are a lot of real estate gurus that will tell you, oh, there's low risk because you're buying this house and it cash flows. I'm like, no, anytime you do any kind of investments. You know, our goal here is to reduce the amount of risk that we take on. If we can manage that downside, the only thing that's left is the upside, right? So you've got to be willing to take on a little bit of risk. And the second thing that I found with a lot of folks, and this happened to me when I started in this business, you'll go to a single family property or a multifamily property and you look at this thing and let's say it's a distressed assets, physically distressed. And you walk through it and you go, my God, what this thing is a complete disaster. You know, and then you start looking at what it's going to cost to rehab and you rehab to the standard in which you live because your house is the only house, the only point of reference. So I walk around my house, a beautiful house, but that's not what my tenants are going to be renting right now. We're not slumlords. I mean, we, we build a quality product, but uh, I see a lot of investors where they take their, the emotion of home ownership and they apply it to their investment portfolio. And I'm like, guys, those are two totally different things, right? So I think that's, that, that's another huge challenge that we see with a, a lot of real estate investors. And then uh, probably the third trait is at some point you got to take action. Like at some point you've got enough information that let's just go do the deal. Like you've got all of the experts in your life, everybody in your team, your attorney, your appraiser, your bank, your lenders all have said, this is a good deal. Now let's go do the deal. We've done all the preparatory work to get married. We're standing there at the altar. All we have to do is I do like that's, that's the only thing that's left. And I see a lot of folks that get cold feet uh, right there before they're about to make uh, a really fantastic business decision. And then they step away. And so that's always painful to watch. So those are, I think the, the three traits, some of those are, are negatives. <laughs> yeah, those are great points. I think the idea, for instance, in investing in the market, you could say, yeah, I really like this, but nah, I just take a 1% position in this and I'll build mm-hmm. it up over time. But with real estate, it's like all or nothing, buddy. You got to do it. You've done the work. It's ready to go. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. What, what's also interesting about the other thing that you said about building, you, you end up building to what you're familiar with. I teach a class called How to Give a Great Presentation and Increase Your Influence. And what I try to teach people is that you 
create the presentation based upon the way you think. Mm-hmm. If you're a left brain person, you're going to have all of this data and analysis and facts. Yep. And if you're a right, right brain person, you're going to have the emotion and the story. But very few people bring both of those together. Mm-hmm. And therefore, they tend to lose half the audience right from the start. Yep. And so I always say to, to don't do your presentation in just the style that you think. So mm-hmm. something, a, a corollary. Now it's time to share your worst investment ever. <laughs> and it makes me want to cry. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Okay. So the worst one, probably the one we lost the, well, it is the absolute one we lost the most money on was a property we bought here in Memorial. It was one of the last couple of houses that we were flipping. So let me explain a little bit how real estate flipping works. You go out and you buy a property that is physically distressed. I mean, it's a, it's a mess. It's a, and, a, and a lot of, you know, people don't buy houses with the intention of them, you know, degrading to a point that is almost uninhabitable. That's, that's never the intention, you know, when they start living there. But maybe there's some emotional distress uh, with the occupants. Maybe mom, dad has passed away and now mom, you know, we've realized mom needs to move into a home and the house is just a real mess. Or the house is just so old, it just needs to be upgraded. So there's an area of town here in Houston called Memorial. It's right near our office in the Energy Corridor. And uh, we had bought a property there, about a 3,000 square foot house, beautiful property, about 60 year old house, and it needed everything. I mean, it had the floral wallpaper and had foundation issues and the roof was leaking. I mean, it was all that, all that sort of stuff. And so we purchased this property. We did a you know pretty decent little rehab on it. You know, opened it up. Actually, it's the first time we used um, engineered steel beam to open up the house. Usually we use an engineered wood beam, but we got all these engineers involved. I mean, this was, we were really building the Taj Mahal at this point. Probably went a little overboard, but we were making it really, really nice. So we're rehabbing this property. It's taken a little bit longer inspected, but that's okay. I mean, you, you account for that. That's part of your uh, risk management that you do and your due diligence on the front end. And so we're rehabbing this property and, um, I'm in Dallas at the time. I'm actually headed up to Dallas to teach a class for real estate investors. Out in the Gulf, we see a, a storm brewing. And I can tell you that there's something coming off the coast of Africa that is headed towards the Gulf Coast that may or may not turn into a storm. We also have storms that just kind of pop up in the Gulf Coast that turn into a storm. But most of them are, you know, they peter out, they, they head out somewhere, they just, they go down to Mexico. I mean, it just, not all of them turn into a really horrific storm. So I'm headed to Dallas to teach a class. I got there Thursday. And so I called my wife and I said, hey, look, this storm looks like it might be kind of big. And uh, it looks like it's headed for somewhere in the Gulf Coast. And of course, I'm talking about Hurricane Harvey. And if this is the first time you've ever heard of Hurricane Harvey, I highly recommend you look it up. There's a great graphic out there. If you type in Hurricane Harvey and then amount of rainfall and then compare that to other cities and they'll show you how much rainfall Houston, Texas took as it relates to if that same rainfall were to happen in, let's say, Seattle or L.A. or New York. Because a lot of people think, oh, yeah, well, you know, it's because you guys are so close to the coast. That's why all that flooded. No, you can't take 36 to 48 inches of rain in 24 hours in any city in the in the United States. It just can't. Um, mm. So it's, it's, uh, I mean, you live in a rainforest, right? I mean, it's uh, Bangkok and good portion of Thailand is all rainforest. It's just mm. 
you get that much rain, it just <laughs> there's no place for it to go, right? Yep. So uh, we well, see we, had, we had a flood that flooded the whole country in oh, 2011. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a floodplain from Chiang Mai down to Bangkok, but anyway, yeah, that's a just, whole other story. Yeah, it's just and, and there's nothing you can do. It's just and you know, I, I hear folks all the time where they'll say if, if they're not from here, they'll say, "Oh, you just ought to. Uh, well, you guys are just up and moving and live somewhere else." I'm like, "You do you understand how big Houston is? Houston, I'd have to look. I pulled up the stats one time." The Houston MSA, as compared to other countries, the just GDP output, it ranks like 20-something. It, it's This is an economic superpower down here. So it's not like you can just up and move to Dallas. I mean, it's just that's not how the world works. So in any case, we see the storm, storm of brewing in the coast. So I called my wife and I said, look, you need to pack the kids up. And even if this thing just blows through, just having the power out for a day or two is a, is a giant nightmare. So she said, okay. So she drives up to Dallas and we're hanging up in Dallas and we've got the kids there. And so my favorite, my kid's favorite thing to do is uh, room service ice cream. Like that's a big deal for them for some reason. I mean, we go to Disney, we do all these fantastic things. We go to Mexico once a year and, for whatever reason, ice cream that comes to your hotel room is a big deal for them. So we're doing this every night, you know, and, and hanging out. And you can see the storm is coming in and coming in. So storm makes landfall on Friday just south of Houston. And the way these uh, storms work, there's the, the rainfall is not equally distributed amongst the, amongst the body of the storm. It's, there's what they call the dirty side. So the dirty side is typically on this hemisphere is the northeast side of the storm, which is where... Houston was. So the storm actually comes through Rockport uh, and then the, the eye of the storm goes through Rockport and then the dirty side of the storm is actually running right through Houston. So we're getting all this rainfall. At the same time the storm was blowing through from the northwest part of the country a low pressure front moved in and so literally the hurricane stalls over Houston, goes back out into the Gulf and then comes back into Houston. So we literally had a, a hurricane sit over the city of Houston for four days straight. Oh, my God. It's absolutely insane. So it's raining and raining and raining. At the time, we had, I want to say it was 47 projects on the ground between properties we were under contract to buy, con properties that we were in the middle of rehab, properties that were on the market, and properties that were on the market under contract to sell. We were just waiting for closing. So I'm sitting there in a hotel room in Dallas and one of my business partners is downstairs teaching a real estate class. And I'll never forget, I'm sitting there and I'm watching the national news coverage and uh, I see this screenshot of Dickinson, Texas. Now I could tell you Dickinson, Texas, and you probably have no idea where that's at, but I'll tell you, you will know when I tell you who is headquartered there, it's right next to Johnson Space Center. So NASA is headquartered there in Dickinson. So right across the freeway, that's where you know, the famous, you know, Houston, we have a problem. That's mission control. So I'm sitting there and there's this intersection in Dickinson. And I take a picture of it with my phone and text it to one of my guys downstairs who I knew had a project in Dickinson. And he sends me a text back. And let me, let me set the stage for this. Here's the picture I took. It's a light. It's a flashing red light. You know, it's a four-way intersection, flashing red lights because the power's out. And there's a gigantic John Deere tractor and a jet ski doing donuts in the intersection. It's gotta be two and a half, three feet deep. And so here's this tractor like up to the axles, 
they're like pulling cows out. I got this trailer full of people they're rescuing. There's a guy doing donuts in this uh, jet ski, picking people up from out of their cars. And I said, hey, man, how close is your project to this? And he said, you see that second roof behind the tractor <laughs> box? He said, that's my house on the bayou. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. So his house was underwater. I'm trying to pinpoint on a map where all of our properties are and which ones are flooded and which ones aren't. So I'm calling employees, I'm calling business partners, I'm calling, I'm calling anybody that's down there. And so in about 24 hours, once we, once we finished up this class and they allowed people back in Houston, then we started, uh, we started the recovery process. So just to give folks a little idea of what happens after a storm, uh, the National Guard moves in and essentially shuts down the city. Now, I can tell you right now, and this is a little, little dirty secret here in Houston, if there's ever a, an event in which we need to evacuate the city, there's not enough concrete in the United States to get everyone out of Houston. It just, you cannot evacuate this city. So we've learned a lot, you know, locally, we've learned a lot about how to manage disasters. And uh, one of the things that you always run out of is fuel, is gasoline. So they were diverting fuel trucks from North Texas, Louisiana, any surrounding areas to Houston. So I'm in Dallas, and then we were experiencing fuel shortages in Dallas. And then while I was in Dallas, I was driving to Central Texas to pick up dehumidifiers, fans, generators, like anything I could pick up with my truck. I mean, I, I probably had $20,000 worth of gear that I picked up in, from between Dallas and Central Texas. So you can imagine driving a couple hours across the state. Then the next day I was able to get into Houston. So driving into Houston, I had to go all the way around because parts, I mean, our, the way the city of Houston set up, it's like an onion. We have these different rings for freeways that go around this. It's actually kind of smart planning. But when any of those rings get cut off, the whole city gets shut down. So the city's still underwater by the time I get here. National Guard's here. There's helicopters flying all over the place. They're still rescuing people. I mean, it was absolute bedlam. So we get here, and the first place we go is uh, we start going down the call list of which, in, which of our staff, which of our employees, are, you know, or houses were personally affected. So there were only three of them that had houses that were flooded. So we immediately took all of our supplies there. I'm like, our portfolio we can worry about later. So we went to all our employees' houses. We're helping them cut out sheetrock and get fans going and turn on dehumidifiers, get generators going. And then uh, about a day later, once we were doing our cleanup for our own folks, then we started looking at our portfolio. And uh, it was absolutely amazing. We had three properties out of all the properties we owned that were impacted by the storm. And two of them we knew would flood because they're in flood zones. We have flood insurance on them. They flooded in the past. I mean, it's just kind of, we knew, right? I mean, there was no surprise there. But then there was this house in Memorial. And I will never forget sitting in a meeting probably two months before, should we get flood insurance on it or should we not? And the house was literally like just in the, just a little piece of the backyard was in the 500 year floodplain. And we thought, eh, probably don't need flood insurance on it. Well, this was a thousand year flood event. So we're driving around town, certain members of my staff were trying to get eyeballs, like that was the big project that day, was just get eyes on the assets. So I had this property in Memorial, and I'll never forget, I drove up, Memorial's a very nice side of town, and the residents in this area had hired private security to ensure that nobody would drive into the neighborhood. So I'm driving in there with my truck, 
And I'll never forget, this guy looks at me and he says, he pulls open the uh, ownership rolls. So he's looking at who owns what property. He said, well, what house do you own? And I said, it's this one off of this street, you know, four blocks this way. And he looks at me and he looks at my truck and he said, you own a house in this neighborhood? I said, yes, I actually own a couple. And he said, what is it that you do again? And I said, I own this house buying company. And then I said, no, you know what? I work for the contractor. I'm here on behalf of, you know, my boss. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not getting anywhere with this guy. And so finally said, okay, we'll let you in. So I drive back there and I'm, you know, in Houston, it's so flat that once a storm blows in, you realize, you know, a one foot drop in elevation somewhere, that was where it was flooded. So you're going, I'm driving down the street here and I hit one stop sign and it drops a couple inches and then I hit the next stop sign, drops another couple inches. And I'm like, oh no, this is, you can feel your heart sinks. You're like, this thing is underwater. I know. And then sure enough, I get to the next stop sign and I can see two stop signs ahead of me and I can see water in the street. And I'm like, Oh no, this thing's got water in it. Doesn't it? So I finally stop. It's I stop at the last stop sign. I can't, the neighborhood is flooded. So I start walking out and it's still another two blocks. So I walk about two blocks and this house was one house from the corner. And I look and I get just around the corner. I think my, uh, if I remember it was right up to about halfway up my, uh, thighs at this point and the water had receded a foot or two already and I just look around the corner and I'm like yep the big one is flooded I mean this is a, almost a million dollar house I'm like yep that one's flooded so I get back in my truck get on the phone call my business partner I'm like yeah that one's flooded man we're gonna have to get in there as, as soon as humanly possible so at this point we are extremely grateful because it's only a couple of properties that flooded there was only one that didn't have flood insurance that flooded so at the, in the grand scheme of things probably not going to lose a lot of money on it. We'll probably, this is what we're figuring at the time. We'll probably break even no big deal. Right? Well, I get on the radio show. I get on our radio show and I start looking at some economic data in, in these certain submarkets pre and post flood from previous floods. And I start to realize that in an, in the way, because really this comes down to consumer behavior. And one of the lessons I learned is that it doesn't matter if your house flooded or not. If your neighborhood flooded, there's going to be a negative impact on the value of your house. And the amazing thing is it, that continues, I don't want to say in perpetuity, but it continues for four or five years afterwards. So let me explain what, how, what, what we were in for at this point. Your house floods, you rehab it. It's now a beautiful house. Well, it's now got this stigma that it's flooded, right? And in Houston, we got pretty short memories, so that lasts for about four or five years. However, if your house did not flood, it was not rehabbed, right? You don't rehab a house that didn't flood. So even if your house did not flood and you decide to put your house on the market five, six years later, now you're competing with flood houses that may not have that stigma of being a flood house, but they're rehabbed and they're beautiful. So anytime you get in these flooded neighborhoods, it's kind of a mess. So we bought this, so we've owned this house, we're starting the rehab, we, get, we are one of the first houses back on the market. But here's the problem. Whenever you have a mass event like that where there's so much flooding, uh, especially when it was in the entire city, people are just trying to dry their houses out. And what's amazing to see is you spend all this money on security, right? You spend all this money on locking your doors and making sure nobody can get into your house, whether to, to hurt you or your loved ones or to keep your your stuff safe, right? No one breaks in and steals my stuff. Well, after a flood, all of your precious stuff is sitting on the curb, <laughs> literally in piles. So 
you get all the junk out of your house and then you're demoing four, at least four feet up in your house. It's gone. I mean, there's, there's just sticks. That's the only thing that's left in the house, four feet and below. It's just sticks. So you could imagine entire neighborhoods where there's a mountain of debris and furniture and clothes and just all that stuff. And then here's our beautiful house that we just finished the rehab on. Like we'd finished the rehab before everybody else got done with even their demoing everything. So imagine doing an open house. Here's this beautiful million dollar home in the middle of this just crazy chaos. And of course, mortgage brokers are freaking out because they're like, what are these houses really worth? And I mean, it's just an absolute nightmare. And so the house sits on the market and it sits on the market and sits on the market and sits on the market. And we keep reducing the price and reducing the price. It's, it's the proverbial you're trying to catch a, a falling knife, right? I mean, you just, where's the bottom? That's the question we would have every day. Where's the bottom? And I told my business partner, I said, look, we, we have two choices here. And uh, you're a finance guy, I would love this. So in, in the study of mental accounting or psychological finance, people hold on to the losers too long, right? So we were having this conversation ad nauseum in our sales meeting. Like, when do we sell this damn thing? Like, are we holding on to it too long because psychologically we think we can hold on to a loser and turns into a winner? Is there really gonna be a bottom and it's gonna bounce back real quickly? And I said, well, how much money are we willing to bet on that? scenario right how much will money are we willing to lose and so uh we just decided to just cut bait and move on and uh on about a million dollar house we lost about two hundred fifty thousand dollars and i can tell you writing a two hundred fifty thousand dollar check at closing to get out of a deal is absolutely heartbreaking it is awful absolutely awful uh, I, I have never before I'd lost a little bit of money on, on some other real estate deals, but I mean, 250K. Now here's the heartbreaking part. I know in the next six to seven years, that'll be a 1.2, $1.3 million house. I mean, it just, we know within five years, it just values just shoot right back up again. But it was absolutely heartbreaking. One of the biggest lessons we learned is you can have flood insurance and really the loss from the actual flood wasn't that much, 30, 40,000 bucks. The real loss was the reduction in value. And unless you go into, unless you use a complicated hedging strategy, I mean, you could do it. I, I mean, you could go, I guess, to the derivatives market and buy, you know, weather related stuff and that, but, but the reality is your portfolio is just not big enough, even for the, for guys our size. And then how do you hedge that risk? It's, it's really tough. Um, especially considering it was just one house out of our entire portfolio. So that was our lesson. It's just, Sometimes a hurricane, sometimes a storm blows in and it's going to, it's going to rock your portfolio and there's just not a damn thing you can do about it. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me of, uh, there was a great um, show on when I was young called uh, Billy Jack. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you recall this one, but he was kind of mm -hmm. half Indian guy, uh, American Indian, and, and he would, he would fight for justice, you know, with his mm -hmm. bare hands. And uh, oh, nice. <laughs> he, he said, he once said in one of his famous lines is he stood in front of this bad guy and he said, I'm going to take my right foot and put it on the right side of your head. And there's not a damn thing you can do about it. And then he knocked him out, you know? So yeah, actually, uh, one of the things that I take away from this is, uh, you know, this is about partially about statistics. And that mm -hmm. is that, you know, okay, the first thing is that you diversified in the sense that you mm -hmm. had 
a lot of different properties. So you kind of did that right. You, you could argue, well, maybe you should have been more geographically diversified and you should have been in other states or other cities. But that brings up all kinds of other risks, too. Oh, massive operational risk. Correct. It really does. Yeah. And, and also, you just don't know that area. And, you know, we recently had a story from Scott Carson talking about mm-hmm. how he went to Chicago for this great deal. And then all of a sudden, you found out that, you know, the legal system doesn't really give much benefit to outsiders coming in. And so, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So, so then I think that my lesson from this, and I learned a lot about statistics when I was young from my teacher, Dr. Deming, is that, you know, you can't plan for everything. There are anomaly type of events that can happen. And if you then build your business around that anomaly happening again, then you're never going to take the risk needed to really make money. And so sometimes, and it's a little bit like, you know, we often see some sorts of tragedies and things like that that happen in America, in the world. And then all of a sudden there's this overcompensation, Mm -hmm. you know, for, uh, you know, for this thing that's probably not going to happen for another 500 years. And, you know, it's a class, it's statistics is a great way to analyze this sort of thing. This event is, this was a. I mean, long tail risk, like six sigma, eight sigma, nine sigma. I mean, this had never happened again or never happened ever. The last event that was even close to this size, literally this was three times worse. It was such a statistical anomaly that if you were to take the data from this event and load it into your risk model, you'd never buy property. I mean, it's just, it's so, parts of the entire parts of the city flooded that should have never flooded ever. I mean, it just, it's so outside of the risk model that managing that level of risk would either be, it would be so expensive to manage, to, to mitigate that risk, or it would be expensive from an opportunity cost. You'd never do a deal. It's just like, yep. Yep. It just, it doesn't make any, you know, it just would never work. So, so that's, I mean, it, right. brings, it brings you down to, I mean, I'm really interested to hear your response on the question that I normally ask at this point is, you know, based upon this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? And I've been thinking about what your answer that's going to be, but I'm just curious, you know, okay, guy walks up and he's going to buy a property and was there something that you could have done? Yeah, I, I will tell you, it's a only thing I could have done. I mean, my loss would have been smaller would have been less if I had flood insurance, but we're talking about 40, 50 grand, right? Could I have immediately rehabbed it and changed my business model? Could it have been a long-term rental? It really couldn't. Could have been an Airbnb, maybe we would have lost. So then you start asking, you start doing the, the what if analysis and you start thinking, okay, well maybe I only would have lost 100 instead of 250. I mean, it just you start going through all the mental kind of calculations of what would have been best. I can tell you what we've done since then. And in real estate, much like personal relationships, time heals all wounds. You know, it really does. If you're a long, if you're holding on to this stuff a little bit longer, it, it does begin to heal all wounds. So I don't flip houses. I don't, I rarely flip houses anymore. I really don't do properties. And if I do, if I do flip a house, it's not at that. I mean, our median home price in Houston is about $250,000, You know, near a million dollars is so far on the right side of the, of the median. We're just not really, we're not really interested in that. We like to be right around that median home price. Got it. $300,000, $400,000 house. 
Now, our business model has changed not as a result of that, but as a result of some other things that are occurring in the marketplace. However, we don't have that risk anymore. So for me, it's, you know, if I own a bunch of rental, and I do own rental properties, but if I own a bunch of rental properties and they get flooded, you just go in and rehab them. Now, the challenge for those guys, those investors, is getting a rehab fast enough so you can then put tenants back into them. But that's like a, that's like a 90, maybe six months kind of deal, 90 days, six months. For me, I just, I choose not to participate in that marketplace anymore. Got it. I think there's a lot more risk there than there, there should be. I'm, I'm more of a, a buy and hold investor these days anyway. I'm thinking of the song, that's life. Yeah. That's, you know, <laughs> yeah. It just, it happens. All right. Mm -hmm. Last question. What's Shoot. your number one goal for the next 12 months? Number one goal. Oh, that's a good question. Number one goal, the number one. It's, it's kind of a, a strange goal because I'm not sure how to measure it just yet. But my theme for 2019 is to be a better player. And, and not as a player in the sense of be play well with others. So I've been w watching and reading a lot of uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson's work lately. And one of the things Dr. Peterson talks about is when someone says, you know, to your kids, it, it's not it's not whether you win or lose, it's how you play the game. And he breaks down, well, what does that mean to play the game? And he's got essentially an hour-long lecture where, where he essentially says, how you play the game, what you really mean is be fun to play with. So be a good person to play the game with. And so how do I turn that into a goal? I don't know. But the what we're doing really this year is being somebody that's fun to play with. In other words, really – broadening our network and deepening those relationships that are most beneficial, whether that's lenders and deals and all. And I can tell you that I had this enormous house buying company. We spent millions of dollars a year on marketing. And now I get on the radio, I do a post on Facebook and deals just start flowing in and money's capital starts flowing in. And so how do I turn that into a goal? I'm not sure. I mean, we've got obviously goals. We want to buy, you know, 25 Airbnbs in this market. We'll do 25 down in, in, in another market that we're operating in. We want to buy some more. We've got some income goals, that sort of thing. But my overarching theme this year is we really want to be better at playing well with others. And I don't know how you measure that, but <laughs> that's, that's what we're doing this year. Well, I guess so, the others around you are the ones that are going to truly measure that. So, well, that's true. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, we've had fun playing on this show and I appreciate your time and, I'm aware that you're about to go on air. So I'm going to mm -hmm. wrap it up here and tell my listeners, there you have it, another story of loss. And this was a whopper to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. And if you know someone who has a story to tell, just have them go to myworstinvestmentever.com, click on the links, and it'll come directly to me. As we end, Jason, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful to talk about our losers, but our <laughs> listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Well, I'll tell you, don't stop. If you take a loss, just keep going. Just keep on trucking. It will get better. It will get better. Love it. Ladies and gentlemen, keep going. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. I'll see you on the upside.